Welcome to Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of September the 18th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'm coming to you again this week from Phoenix. We're going to talk about a couple of things that happened this week in tax. First, going to look at a case where a taxpayer was trying to get out of paying penalties on significant amount of tax. But the key issue that was facing the taxpayer here was whether there was reasonable cause. And the taxpayer was going to argue that the taxpayer had relied upon the CPA that prepared the return. And we'll discuss why the taxpayer was not able to successfully use that defense in that case. We're also going to talk about an announcement that came out from the IRS this week that the agency is going to halt processing of newly received employee retention credit claims until after the end of 2023 and will slow down the processing of claims currently in process. The agency also put out a checklist that employers can use to verify whether they believe their claim is potentially valid. Uh, as well as greatly expanded the FAQs on the IRS website to add additional items regarding uh, some additional guidance in various areas. And we'll talk about what this means, why it was done, and what you should be concerned about. So let's start out here first with the case of Johnson versus Commissioner. This is Tax Court Memo 2023-116. This uh, came out on September the 13th. And this is a tax return that frankly contained a lot of errors. I mean, we're going to be talking about a rather significant adjustment in taxes for the individual. And there were various reasons of the person in question. It's a married couple. By the time the case came to trial, the wife had passed away. So it is the husband uh, and he as personal representative for his wife's estate. So it was a joint return, joint returns when filed. Obviously, at this point, only the husband is involved in the current contest involved at this point. Now, the biggest error and probably the one that is toughest to explain away was an error in depreciation of buildings that had been acquired by the taxpayer. Now, the court was looking at 2015 and later years. Those are the years before the court. But this building had been acquired well before that. In fact, the two buildings that were that they fouled up their depreciable lives on were both acquired in 2006. And in fact, what they had done back in 2006, instead of setting up these buildings as 39-year life buildings, they had set the buildings up as seven. Now, one important point to note here is the case never tells us if the CPA who prepared the returns for the year under exam was also the CPA that prepared the 2006 returns. So we're not sure if this was, you know, a problem the CPA had made and somehow had, had fouled up and got seven years instead of 39 years on a commercial building, or whether it was the CPA had a new client who came in with this problem already there. And that second category could be interesting because if you think about it, we bought them, at, we got in 2006, 2015 is a year in front of us. Those buildings are going to be fully depreciated because seven-year makers is going to run out entirely before we get to 2015. So the key question one might ask is, 
you know, well, why is this even an issue? If the building's fully depreciated, then really makes no difference, right? It's fully depreciated. So, you know, basically all the excess depreciation was claimed in an earlier year. So therefore, IRS, sorry, you're too late. You know, because we have statutes, right? You know, you have to file the IRS has to assess tax against a year within normally, unless there's a substantial understatement of income. Remember, this was an excess of deductions. Uh, they would have to assess the tax within three years after the date the return was filed. You know, assuming it was filed timely, etc. So we have a three-year statute, and 2015 was given the fact that's the case that came the year came for the tax court. We can pretty safely assume that 2015 was the oldest open year when the IRS uncovered these issues. But the problem is, and this is one to remember, uh, these sorts of problems don't go away if they represent not what's considered an error in general, because a simple error, like a case number of years ago we had with a, with a memo, basically a chief counsel advice, where the IRS found that the taxpayer had been deducting their, in essence, they, they had deducted twice the discounts they were giving to their customers, which you know, was kind of a problem. But that, that was a straight error, because that doesn't fall into the category of things we're going to call accounting methods. Accounting methods impact the timing, but not the amount of an inclusion of income item or a deduction item. And using the wrong life for depreciation is treated by the IRS and under the code as a basically an accounting method problem. The taxpayer used the wrong method. Instead of using a 39-year life to depreciate this build, these two buildings over, they erroneously had used seven. So who cares? Well, the big catch is for an accounting method, how we fix that is you have to go back and effectively recompute the prior years as if the proper amount of depreciation had been claimed and compare that to the tax, the taxable income with that being done properly compared to the taxable income that would have been recognized had you, as you done it, or I should say, taxable income done properly, so we got that computation, versus what we actually reported, which obviously was significantly less taxable income because we, you know, should have still had 32 years of building left to depreciate. So, you know, how, what we do there is we have to go back and set up that excess deduction has to be included in income and then the proper depreciation computed for each future year. Now, if a taxpayer voluntarily makes the change, that is, they discover the change and they make it voluntarily, then you spread that over four years normally unless the balance is less than 50 grand. Um, or if it's a negative adjustment because you basically didn't claim deductions as much as you should have, so let's say instead of using seven years for a piece of property, you use 39, uh, you know, and that often comes up if one does a cost seg study. That's the argument that parts that you've been using 39 years on really were seven year, five year, whatever assets. In that case, since it should have been a five year asset, uh, you know, those sorts of things, you pick up a negative adjustment. That negative adjustment does all come in in one year. 
But if the IRS is the party that discovers the error on exam, then the IRS will force you to make the change and pick up the adjustment in full in the first open year. So in this case, the taxpayer was going to go back and pick up 32 years of depreciation, roughly, as income in 2015, and then report depreciation for the future years, but obviously at a relatively small amount, right? Much smaller than the big chunk they were picking up. So that's the problem there. It was an accounting method. And that, that's important. If you don't understand accounting methods, you need to, because one of the reasons why this might have stayed uncorrected, and it's only one reason, there are others which we might decide are more likely as we look at the other things that got fouled up. But one of the reasons why it might stand corrected is some tax advisors who don't understand accounting method rules may very well look at that. Let's say that you took over this client in 2015 and you discover, hey, the building, why is there no depreciation on this building? We bought it in 2006. It's a commercial building. You know, why in the world aren't we depreciating it right now? As I recall, the buildings in question were hotels. You know, we should have depreciation. And they discovered, oh, they used a seven-year life when you get to the depreciation schedules. And you might decide, well, you know, okay, it was done in error, but the erroneous deductions have already been claimed. Those years cannot be revised at this point. Uh, so therefore, um, or at least most of them could. So therefore, what we're going to do is we're just going to go ahead and say that's old and cold. IRS didn't catch it. Tough luck. Not how it works here in this point. And of course, the CPA did not suggest, or well, I shouldn't say she didn't suggest. We don't know. But we know for sure that no such change of accounting method, which would be done with a 3115 because it's an automatic method change, was actually filed and the change didn't take place in 2015. That means in exam, we're going to pick up the entire adjustment in 15. Now, that in one sense may have no difference. If the taxpayer was already in the maximum tax bracket, it may not make a huge difference, uh, you know, depending upon their standard income level. And in this case, I think it could be pretty significant. But it would make a difference on interest, which does compound daily. And that extra interest running for more time, that's a bigger problem. Right. And of course, there will be that interest to deal with here. But that wasn't the only problem that was by far the biggest. The next one isn't exactly small, but given the size of this problem, OK, it's it's relatively smaller. And the second problem was errors for charitable contributions. And the specific problem here, it's for non-cash contributions, were documentation issues. Right. In this case, the taxpayers reported on an 82, 83 for the year. They, they reported non-cash contributions of 150500 Of that, 150000 represented a building they had donated that they valued at $150,000. And they also gave fencing. That was valued at $2,500 in a separate donation. So they have two charitable contributions for $152,500. So that's fine. And we didn't really get into the question of what they were worth. So let's assume they're worth $152,500. We'll go ahead and we'll accept that. The one problem was because the building was worth more than $5,000 under the code, 
the taxpayer is required to obtain, in accordance with regulations published by the IRS, which exist, a qualified appraisal that must be prepared. And as well, the other problem we have to have is we need the charity to sign an acknowledgement. Now, no qualified appraisal was ever prepared, and the charity didn't sign the part of the form that is supposed to be signed for them to acknowledge the receipt of it. The other problem was for the fencing, they did not produce, and they didn't produce it for the building either, a requirement under Section 170F8 is for any contribution, single contribution in excess of $250, a taxpayer cannot claim, and this is absolute, cannot claim a deduction unless they obtain a contemporaneous written acknowledgement from the charity that states when it, when it was given, what was given, if it was dollars, the amount of its property described the property, and also tell us either that nothing was received by the uh, donor in exchange for this gift or tell us what was received and give us a relative value of it, evaluation of it. And that must be in the taxpayer's possession prior to the date, the later of the date that their tax return is, you know, or I should say the earlier of the date, that the tax return was due or the date the return was filed by the taxpayer. In this case, they never got such an acknowledgement or at least never produced it in the court case. Now, as I said, this rule is also very simple. And as unfair as it is, and the courts have commented on the fact that Congress was very nasty here, but the law simply says that we don't care if you gave it. You know, we don't care if it's really worth that. If you don't get the documentation and you don't have it and you fail to meet these rules, the deduction allowed is zero. Nada. You get nothing. And in this case, the qualified appraisal would have blown the building away. But even had they gotten the appraisal without having contemporaneous written acknowledgement, which would have probably been difficult, because remember the charity's supposed to sign the acknowledgement, which of course would kind of be, could probably step in for that. I don't know if we've ever had a case on it because I don't think the IRS had raised that issue. I think they'd agree that was an acknowledgement. But in any event, well, at least, but, you know, in any event, the problem is that just not getting the CWA would have made the contribution non-deductible. Now, there are other quirky rules in 170. Donations of vehicles and airplanes are subject to special rules, and there has to be a special extra outline in the uh, contemporaneous written acknowledgement if you make a donation to a to basically to a donor advised fund. And that one has to say that you received, in essence, you, you understand, they, they tell you specifically that they have full rights to determine what happens with those funds. And remember, as I've explained to a few clients, the issue there being that, you know, you're only getting this deduction because you've already given it to a charity. You didn't give it, you, despite what it looks like, you did not give it to a bank account you control. You gave it to a charity. You're allowed to give the charity advice on where to put the funds, but they absolutely cannot agree they will do that, even if what you tell them is a charity that would qualify. So they could make it, right? Obviously, they can't make contributions to organizations that don't qualify, but then they have to make it to an organization that does qualify. 
you know, if they decide, nope, you know what, we're just not making donations to XYZ, you know, organization because we are associated with whatever, we disagree with their, you know, we disagree with their positions, you know, whatever it might be, we're just not, not going to, you know, make a donation there. Uh, you would have to live with that if a donor advised fund did that. That would be part of the deal. So again, this case, no question, the deductions would not be allowed. Okay. Now, the next one is really kind of interesting. And this is they claimed a deduction for interest paid on a loan twice on their individual return. They probably claimed the $44,806 as home mortgage interest on Schedule A. So fine, it's there. But that exact same amount of interest, which was determined at trial to be the interest paid on the exact same loan, so it was a clear duplication, was also listed as interest deductions for a commercial property they were renting on Schedule E. Don't know if it was one of the hotels or whatever, but no, it shouldn't be the hotel. They're going to Schedule C, right? But in any event, it was listed on there against commercial property. So that's another problem. It was on there twice. Again, absolutely clear. You cannot claim this deduction for the same interest twice. You can't claim deduction for interest on a commercial building rental unless it traces to the commercial building rental as well. You have to claim it for the right thing. So that's also an adjustment. And the least significant adjustment, though, as long as you're making errors, you might as well go this path. They reported $30,000 and $13 or Social Security benefits for the year instead of the actual $35,492. My guess in a case like that is somebody probably added up the net uh, instead of taking a look at the gross benefits, right? So after they reduced it for Medicare and, you know, and it might have been Part D, you know, you never know all the details of what the reductions might have been. But instead of, instead of picking up the gross number, they did the net. And that can happen quite often when they just go back and start adding it up, you know, from their, you know, their check register. So whatever they did that, 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 that one was the easiest to kind of understand what happened, right? Now, none of these adjustments are being disputed by the taxpayer at trial, right? This is not what we're disputing. Rather, they wanted the court to remove the 20% accuracy related penalty that had been imposed by the IRS under IRC section 6662. They were looking to get reasonable cause relief under 6664C1, which applies to certain uh, types of penalties that come under 6662. Now, the IRS argued three different reasons why 6662 penalties applied, uh, either to all of what they did or at least parts of it. First thing is the IRS argued, and this they claimed applied to everything, that the taxpayers were flat out negligent in applying the code and regulations. Uh, that is a position that the IRS has the burden to show the negligence, that they failed to exercise, you know, basically they had ignored the rules and regulations, you know, essentially they had been negligent in not properly applying them. So that one, but even if it's not that one, if you have a substantial understatement of tax, which is the uh, lesser of the adjustment the IRS is proposing is lesser of $5,000 or I should say the greater of $5,000 or 10% of the taxes should have been shown on the return properly. In this case, their adjustments were way in excess of that trigger. Now, in that case, all the IRS has to show is that there's an adjustment greater than 10%. Once that's shown, 
then the burden's done with the IRS. The taxpayers will now have the burden to show reasonable cause. But in both of these cases, if the taxpayer can show reasonable cause, that they had reasonable cause for their mistake and they acted in good faith, then the penalty can be, you know, basically will be waived. However, there is a third category the IRS also said applied. They said that there was a gross or substantial overstatement of an amount of a charitable contribution, which under 6662E also triggers this penalty, but the 6662E version of the penalty, the gross overstate, the gross substantial overstatement of the contribution, that penalty is not able to be waived for reasonable cause or good faith. So 6664C1 wouldn't work. So if the IRS is correct on their reasons here, then even if there was reasonable cause and good faith for every one of these issues, uh, the IRS, in essence, the taxpayer would still end up with the 20% penalty for the amount of the adjustment that relates to their blown contribution to the charities, right? That would be the background. So the court said, let's first deal with that whole 6662E issue. Is that a proper penalty? And as, as I noted, because you can't get reasonable cause relief, the court wanted to look at that first. Because if that doesn't apply, you know, the IRS still says, you know, the other two will cause us to owe 20% on the amount of the, that relates to the charitable contribution. So they're saying, look, if, if, if we can get rid of that one and then we can get talking about reasonable cause, then, you know, it could waive all of it. So let, let's take care of this one first. And if it turns out that the, you know, the overstatement of the value of the property applies in this case, then we can take that much off. We know that much penalty is due. But the court didn't really buy the IRS's position here. They said, here's the catch. And it makes some sense. The IRS member, having shown no documentation, right? There was no appraisal. There was no contemporaneous written, written acknowledgement. Basically, the deduction went to zero. The IRS did not have to worry about the proper value of the building. Doesn't matter what the proper value is because you can't deduct it because you fouled up on documentation. But the court said, here's our problem. This is a penalty where the burden is on the IRS. And the IRS has to show that there was an improper valuation because there was no evidence submitted regarding the value of the property. And it wasn't really challenged by the IRS that the value was wrong. The court said, well, IRS, you can't carry this penalty. The mere fact that it wasn't deductible is not the same as saying it was overvalued. Had the building been worth 150, had the fencing been worth 2,500, we can grant that they still wouldn't get the deduction because they have documentation. IRS, you chose not to litigate this issue, chose not to raise this issue and fight it. But because of that, you haven't carried your burden on this one. So the court rules right off that all of these 6662 penalty, if there is reasonable cause, you know, you have reasonable cause for the misstatement and the taxpayer acted in good faith, it could all be waived. But this was the end of the good news for the taxpayer. Right. So even though we can look at reasonable cause for the others, it's going to work out not working. Now, how the taxpayer tried to claim this, generally the courts look for reasonable cause exception. They, they're looking primarily to, did the taxpayer in good faith reasonably attempt to properly determine their tax liability? Okay. 
Now, one way you can demonstrate you did that is by look seeking advice from a competent tax professional. So let's say you've got a client and the client's not sure if they qualify for, let, let's say, a research credit. And so, you know, the credit for increasing research activities under Section 41. If they go seek a professional, now be careful here, because if the professional is paid on a contingency basis, then it turns out that the, IR, the courts will not generally allow that under this rule. So you need to have, you have somebody who essentially is paid for their, solely for their advice and their payment does not matter whether they say you do or don't qualify. So we will say that, but then I'll go forward using the research credit for my example. So if we did that, if you went out and you got somebody who took a look, you had a research study here, you know, somebody did a research study, a credit study, and suggested that you qualified for 100,000 of research credit. And you get this outside, you know, you pay a third party not associated with the, uh, you know, with the company that did the study uh, to look over the justifications and they may bring in some of their own other experts. But they, they look over this and they say, you know what? Yeah, they're, they're right. You qualify for 100 grand. We're, we're fully behind that. So you paid a fee up front to them. They say, yeah, you qualify for the 100 grand. Then even if you go to trial or, you know, the IRS comes and examines you and it turns out they, you know, they, they win, they, they carry the day. You didn't qualify for the hundred grand. You would almost certainly get out of the penalty because you would, you know, basically sought the advice of a competent tax professional and who had no skin in the game in terms of, you know, they, they, they didn't need to come to the conclusion you qualified in order to get paid. You were going to pay them regardless. Then you'll get out of it. So now the question becomes, in this case, the Johnsons hired a CPA to prepare the return. Well, to rely on that CPA, there are three things that the Johnsons have to show. They have to show the CPA was a competent professional who had sufficient expertise uh, to give advice in this area. So you, you, you didn't have to go get somebody, you know, a, a student fresh out of, you know, who just passed the CPA exam and has finished their, you know, the, the number of years of experience. So you didn't go for them for some huge, wild, complicated, multinational, uh, you know, combination of corporations and their view on whether it worked. Yeah, that person probably doesn't have the expertise and experience uh, to be able to rule on that. But you found somebody who reasonably and based on, and this is also somewhat judged by the sophistication of the taxpayer, you know, in essence, we, we don't have, you don't have to be, in order to make that determination, you don't have to be a CPA, you know, with 10, with, you know, with basically with five decades of experience, uh, you know, in deeply involved in corporate transactions in order to be able to make this determination. We're going to assume that that's not going to be the case. You know, what would a, ta what would the taxpayer, given their background, you know, did, did they do a job that's reasonable for somebody, their background to actually try to, you know, evaluate this. Okay. In this case, they're going to say, yes, the Johnsons did that. The CPA had, you know, appeared, you know, appeared to be a competent professional, appeared to have sufficient expertise. Now, again, you know, they don't really have to do a lot of digging in terms of verifying. They usually can use what these, you know, what, what the CPA tells them, you know, what they're saying, because that, that'll be considered to be an investigation. And so that'll work. But in any case, we're fine here. The second thing they need to show is they provided all necessary and accurate information. 
They provided all, this, all the information to the CPA about these transactions, and the information was accurate. They didn't withhold anything that they reasonably should have known was significant, and they didn't refuse to provide any information to the CPA if the CPA requested it. So they covered the second one. Great. But here's the third one, and this is where the Johnsons ran into trouble. They have to show they actually relied on good faith on the advisor's actual advice. And this is where the court's going to run into trouble here. Did they rely, was their advice given? And even if it was given, was their reliance good faith? Let's talk about this. The court said, fundamentally, they never documented they ever engaged the CPA to provide advice. They didn't show that they had ever specifically asked the CPA about these issues or that the CPA had actually provided that advice on that issue. So there was no evidence they had that they had ever asked the CPA if seven years was an appropriate life. They never showed that she had actually ruled to them or told them what the appropriate life was or that they had asked her to rule on it. Now, remember, we don't even know that she was the CPA involved when it was purchased. So we don't know who put the seven-year life in there, right? And that wasn't really told us at court either. You know, it could have been her. It could have been the taxpayer who just wanted it rapid. You know, he didn't want to go pay for a, you know, basically, he didn't want to go pay for a study, cost-seg study, to figure out how much he could write off right away. So he just wanted to go to seven years on everything. Um, you know, I don't know why, but, but basically they never showed that they had asked her if it was in fact a seven year life property. They did claim that she had told them that it was okay to use an assessor's valuation instead of getting an appraisal for the property they donated, but she denied she ever discussed that with them and they had no other evidence that she had, right? There also was no evidence that she had ever actually discussed any of the other issues, right? So I hadn't talked with them about the interest or that issue uh, or about the Social Security. And honestly, yeah, in both those cases, it looked like just straight up errors. You know, that one could even be just misfilled in organizers could explain those two. The court said, look, you never got advice. If you never got advice, then you could not have relied on that advice in good faith. That's what the court found. The court found, the court pointed out to case law that merely having a CPA prepare the return does not meet the reasonable, the requirements for reasonable basis, right? We found that multiple times. In fact, even goes the Boyle case. Remember all those cases we've had where the taxpayer is unable to get relief, where, you know, the CPA fails to file an extension you know, basically somehow never gets the electronic filing file submitted, etc. Again, that's, you know, th those are things where you just can't show that because the courts may rule, you cannot reasonably rely on certain things. So merely having the CPA do it's not enough. And it doesn't matter. We'll get talk about her responsibilities to the client, but that's not what the court was looking at here. The courts look at the taxpayer, right? The taxpayer has a non-delegable duty to review the return for potential issues. And this is where the second problem comes in for this taxpayer. The court could not accept that a taxpayer who had over 50 years, half a century, if you, as you think the court referred to it, of experience in real estate 
could have possibly not seen that there were problems on the depreciation schedule or that there or that basically there should have been appraisals involved for this sort of property he's making a gift of that those were such obvious issues that somebody with real estate background should have picked up on that the court found it just didn't make sense and obviously the social security they obviously didn't look at the 1099 SSA and that 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 doesn't take any great skill set and you know listing the same interest twice is also a problem and you know you would assume that he'd worked in real estate for years he's been involved in this that he would know approximately how much interest should show up on that one rental and clearly there was an extra 40 plus thousand dollars on there that he should have noticed so the court said even if you'd been told all of this was correct the fact is you knew it wasn't and because you knew it or you should have known it had you looked at the return then there's no way this could be good faith. You have a responsibility before you can have any sort of good faith reliance, you have a responsibility to review the return. They never did. Now, could this case have turned out differently if the taxpayer had not been in real estate for 50 years? If this was the first commercial building they had ever owned an interest in, you know, and they had no background? It might have been different. And I'll phrase it that way. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting question. I do think the fact that they had no background, you know, that they basically, that they had a background in real estate suggests that, you know, you've been doing this long enough. This should have been something you knew. He claimed he couldn't understand depreciation schedules. And the court essentially rejected that right off. Well, you know, the key said, oh, they're just a bunch of jumbled up numbers. And they said, sorry, we don't find that plausible for somebody who's been in real estate to claim they have no idea what depreciation is, right? You've been around too long, guy. Uh, you know, this, the, you know, I have to assume you're a total idiot and I'm not going to make that assumption is kind of what the court comes down to. But you might ask, what about the CPA and the preparation standards? Well, that, that's a real question. But remember, number one, that was not what the court was looking at in this case, right? The court was looking at the taxpayer's responsibility, not the CPA's. And it doesn't matter what the CPA's responsibilities were. The taxpayer separately must meet their requirements to get reasonable cause relief. Remember, the penalties imposed on the taxpayer, not the CPA. Now, the CPA could face penalties uh, for some of this because obviously there are preparer penalties on the Internal Revenue Code. There's also, uh, you know, CPAs in most states have to have to meet the standards of the Statements on Standards for Tax Services. And there are clearly a number of areas of exposure for this CPA, right? You're not supposed to sign a return that has a position that, you know, does not have at least a reasonable chance of being sustained on its merits. There was no chance whatsoever that seven-year life property, you know, that method was going to be sustained on its merits in the IRS exam. The CPA certainly should have advised them that they needed a change of method. And if the client was not willing to do it, she shouldn't have prepared the return. You know, she should have simply said, we either do that or find a new CPA, right? At, same thing is true about the charitable contributions. As I said, the rules are very, very simple and very straightforward in the code. No deductions, zero, nothing, nada. That's it. You know, so, and, you know, we have enough case law that makes it very clear that there's no exception here, right? There is no position. Her position, again, on the return had no reasonable basis. 
So again, she shouldn't have prepared the return if they didn't have, you know, the contemporaneous written acknowledgement. Now, maybe she didn't know about that, though you might suggest you should ask. Uh, and I'll tell you for liability purposes, you probably should ask. Because if it gets disallowed and it discovered you never asked the client or informed them about this rule, because it's an odd rule, I could see getting in trouble. Uh, but also the appraisal, she should have seen that. You should have known that they had to sign that the charity was supposed to sign off on, you know, having received it at least, and none of that happened. So, you know, there's definitely exposure here for the CPA. And, you know, that's, you know, that that's one of the problems. Now, her exposure. Uh, prepare a penalty from the IRS. I, it could happen, but I doubt it. You know, they don't do many of those because CPAs fight like mad on them. So, you know, EAs, CPAs, et cetera, will fight like mad because there's a good chance if one of those gets imposed on you that your license is going to be in trouble in the next step. So basically, you know, they usually fight on those. So the IRS doesn't spend a lot, you know, those are very, uh, auditor intensive cases. And so then they don't really raise that much money. So bottom line, she may not worry about that. The bigger problem probably would be a civil claim against her. Uh, remember, while the, while the court was worried about the taxpayer's obligation to the IRS, if this client decides to sue the CPA in state court, then the issue will be the CPA's responsibility to the client. And, you know, the taxpayer may very well turn around and say, hey, look, you know, I had you prepare my return. The implication is that a good CPA would not have signed this return under your standards. You shouldn't have if you knew or should have known that there was the positions weren't reasonable and you should have told me that you failed to, therefore, please write the nice big check. Okay, that's a possibility. But let's ask ourselves even better, how, how did she end up going along with this? And again, we don't know, but there is a, some ways to speculate. I wouldn't doubt that the client did not want the depreciation corrected. Right. It doesn't matter. The client said, no, you said, hey, look, here's the problem. You've claimed depreciation over seven years. That's an improper method. It should be 39. You should follow 3115. We should correct that and do it. And we can do an automatic change. And the client said, no, let him catch me. And people will say things like that to the CPA. Right. And same for the contribution. You know, she may have told them that they needed to, you know, get contemporaneous authorization. Well, you know, they may or may not have done that. That seemed like too much trouble. And, you know, that they need an appraisal. And they may have said, forget it. We're just going to go ahead and use the assessor's value because we all know that those are low. In Arizona, we know those are low. You know, so, hey, it'll work just fine. That's no problem. I'm not going to go pay an appraiser, you know, to do the formal full-blown appraisal. You know, we're just going to go ahead and use that. That'll be fine. Why are you being such a pain? And unfortunately, sometimes we fall for those two. You know, we go ahead and accept it. The client, the client told us not, not to do 3115. Well, then, then we can't do one. You're partially true. That is right. You cannot, and you won't get paid, and you, and you can't because client didn't authorize it. You do a change of accounting method. But here's the problem. That doesn't mean you have to do the return. You can impose condition, and your engagement letter should allow you to, you know, that, you know, positions on the return have to be properly disclosed, you know, in the judgment of the CPA to be properly disclosed. And that if the, you know, if you will, if you refuse 
to allow them to take positions on their have at least a reasonable basis, and in that case, proper disclosure or substantial authority without disclosure. If you refuse to take those positions and refuse to do what's required, that the CPA has a right to disengage immediately. Right? You do it right or you don't worry about it. In any event, you know, she did this. And I said, I feel bad for her because obviously, you know, now that you know, obviously this client's going to be mad. Um, this client may forget and they do totally forget they ever told you not to do that. Uh, and if you don't have it in writing, they told you not, not to do 3115, you're probably going to lose that case in front of a jury who's going to believe that, oh, the CPA is just lying because she doesn't want to admit she screwed up. Juries believe non-experts, right? Juries believe an expert would have documented this. Juries believe an expert would have put it in writing to tell the client about this. Jury believe that you're lying now. That may be unfair, but that's how the world goes. So, you know, watch out for these things. Uh, it's a bit of a problem. Next up, there was a big IRS announcement on the 14th, so Thursday. And it's on their webpage, which always has these super long titles. To protect taxpayers from scam, IRS orders immediate stop to new employee retention credit processing amid surge of questionable claims, concerns from tax pros. And that was, I guess those are two, they're separated by semicolons, so those are like two separate concerns. And this is Internal Revenue Service News Release 20, IR 2023-169, issued on the 14th of September. Now, as they say, the first thing to note about this is if they, if they don't have a claim in their hands on the 14th, if they did not have a claim in their hands as of that date that they were processing, any claims came in on the 15th, 16th, 17th, etc., the IRS will do nothing with them until the 1st of January at the earliest. So bottom line, they're halting processing. That's step one. They also published a couple of other things. First thing is, they published a checklist or questions and answers, how they refer to it in the actual document. And then when you go there, it's called checklist, but a checklist for ERC qualification that walks through specific details. And in fact, has a whole special section about being especially concerned if you're being told you qualify for supply chain reasons, talking about how difficult it is. In fact, eventually in these documents, they tell us it's highly unlikely that a supply chain claim is correct. So yeah, that's, that, that's a problem. They also updated the documents, their document of red flags for employee retention credits that if you are a employer and you're thinking about, you know, I just watched that uh, commercial on TV. You know, they, they tell me I should get a quote, second opinion. And uh, I know my CPA said I don't qualify, but you know, what does my CPA know about this? And so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, call up and get the second opinion. Well, they, they tell you there's an updated document of red flags. And by the way, a big red flag from the IRS perspective, which will trip up almost every mill you see, is that you, know, you should be highly suspicious of any consultant whose fee is based on a percentage of what they get back for you. Now, you might say, well, wait, that, that seems fair. You know, and I mean, attorneys do do contingent fee works in, you know, in legal cases. Yeah. But there, there's a difference here. If I go to trial, let, let's say we're talking about I'm going to trial, I'm suing somebody for damages and the attorney takes it on a contingent fee basis. Well, that's either going to be formally settled between, you know, my attorney 
is going to negotiate a settlement with the with, with the you know with the defendant and we're going to agree to pay me x or we're going to formally go to court and we're going to get a formal judgment and because in either case there is a total settlement here that shuts down the whole thing and either both parties agree to the amount or you know a court of law has imposed the amount well that's that simple in that case we're done the problem with contingent fees for things like this is that we're not done clients don't understand that just because the irs pays a refund claim doesn't mean you're going to get to keep the money right they still have the right to come back later and examine that claim again right they issue it but they have a right to go through a full-blown exam and you know you say i'm owed this money they are allowed to just process it and pay out that money without having to necessarily give up their rights they can come back later and challenge it that's the huge difference as well because the uh you know in many cases this consultant knows the irs is being flooded with these things you know and the irs said they were getting recently they're coming in at fifty thousand a week um because they're being absolutely flooded way beyond what they could reasonably hope to look at, you know, you know, in order to process and pay out a claim in like 30 to 90 days, uh, you know, they, they figure a lot of them would just be paid out and pure audit lottery suggests that nobody would ever look at them. And of course, the other thing which I tell clients is also be aware that if you've got a company that didn't exist for the ERC, you know, who claims they're going to pay for your representation if it goes wrong, uh, you do realize their money is going to be cut off when the last claim date goes by on, you know, on, on March 15th, 2020, or let's say, yeah, well, yeah, it would be April 15th, 2025. Um, they're essentially going to have any claim they haven't already started is, is gone and can't be done right And April 15th to 24. They're going to lose the 2020 claims. So their, their cash flow is going to dry up even though the IRS may still be examining those claims, certainly the claims they filed, and certainly the last claim process that's paid out is going to be exposed for at least another two years for the IRS to come back and examine it. And that opens up a whole nightmare of cases, right, about how all of this is going to get handled because obviously if it turns out, hey, you know, it, it all got disallowed, we went to court, we lost at the end, the court ruled zero. Um, yeah, how are you going to get paid back that contingent fee? You know, all those issues, that, that, that's going to be kind of a mess. So that, that's why they're dangerous in the ERC range, right? It's not the same as a lawsuit in court. Different world. Now, the IRS also updated the FAQs. I should say that too, which are really nicely updated as well. Now, the IRS says why they do this. That the halt is meant to protect small businesses from falling victim to unscrupulous promoters. The IRS does probably point out that the worst case scenario for a taxpayer is to file for the ERC, receive the cash. You might think, wait, that, isn't that the good thing? Because the problem is if they receive the cash and let's say they send 25% over to, you know, second, second opinion refunds, right? So they've sent 25% of it over there. Uh, okay. Now we come back, you know, IRS comes back, you know, about two years after they filed the claim and disallows it. 
Well, at this point in time, the client's going to have to pay back the entire claim. Yeah, which would include the 25% that went to second opinion refunds. Um, you know, their, their, their background. And, you know, if second opinion refunds isn't around, and certainly at least some of these ERC mills will not be around, they're not, you know, again, what, where does the money come to keep the doors open? That's really a key question. It's not obvious where they would come. Um, you know, we're going to have them in big trouble. So the IRS says that's their, plus they could owe, they'd owe 20% penalty for negligence. Talk about those already. The IRS and the courts would not let them rely on the promoter because again, they have a, you know, in essence, they, they were incentivized to say yes. Right. So you can't rely on that. That goes back to neonatology case. And so because of that, you know, you're going to be stuck with the penalty and you're going to be stuck with interest compounded daily. Right. Yet, yes, you got interest when it wasn't, you know, until it was paid. But now on the other side, you're going to be running on the other side. And interest rates recently been going up, not down. So the interest compounded daily when you pay it back would be way higher. And the likelihood is they spent the money. So this is called a going out of business time for a lot of small businesses if they get caught like that. For those who we do have, the IRS does currently have in process, they'll be processed, but they'll be subject to a stricter review. The IRS expects, and even once this gets up and running, that instead of an expected turnaround time of 90 days, which they've said they've met for most of the claims so far, they're going to expect at least a 180-day turnaround with a potentially much longer time frame if you face a reviewer audit of your claim. So be ready for that. The IRS also makes it clear they may seek additional documentation from the taxpayer before finishing process and claims. So expect to get calls from them to give us give us a copy of the, if you're going to claim that you were shut down, you know, full or partial suspension, give us a copy of the government orders. Give us a copy of, you know, show us the exact census of those orders that, you know, that impacted your business. Show us documentation of exactly how that caused you to have to fully or partially shut down. You're claiming partial, they remind you that either you had to totally shut down something generated 10% of your income or had 10% of employee hours, or you have to show that the modifications to your um, operations that were required by the changes reduced your ability to, you know, to actually create product, ability to create services. Not even now, it doesn't matter if you didn't get orders, that's different. Could you have? So, for instance, let's take an obvious example. If I was a restaurant, pure sit down restaurant, and I was ordered to shut down, you know, to basically take half of my tables out of service, I could st now I could still serve indoors now, but I had to reduce my table count by half to able to enable social distancing, let's say. Well, that would be able to be shown that that would reduce your ability to, you know, produce your product, supplying meals to customers who are dining in by more than 10%, 50% effectively. So even if nobody showed up at your restaurant, it wouldn't matter because your ability was dropped by that. But if you can't show that, you know, you're saying, well, we required to do X and Y, we had to maintain distancing, but you can't show how that would have reduced your ability to deliver product. Like in our average CPA firm, you know, yes, we might have been told to distance, although usually we were told 
you know, again, masking, they'll tell you doesn't qualify. Let's assume distancing somehow did. Um, it's tough to argue how requiring CPAs to stand six feet apart from each other, you know, assuming you at least had room in the building for everybody to be there, and assuming they had to be there, which is another long assumption. Uh, it's tough to show how that would reduce your ability to produce by more than 10%, right? If, if it was one of those things, if it went down, it probably went down because you didn't have customers. If you don't have customers, then that, that's what the reduction in gross receipts was for, right? That's how that was supposed to work. So they're saying, yeah, we want that documentation. Uh, if you're going to considering filing a claim, they say review the IRS guidance and tools, including the expanded FAQ and the checklist. Right. In essence, think long and hard before filing a claim and don't just rely on the statements from the promoters. Right. Anybody who's getting paid on a percentage of the claim, don't solely rely on their statements. You know, check out other items that aren't coming from them. The IRS did say they're developing a settlement program that will be available for repayments this fall for clients who may be, you know, taxpayers that are now thinking they got funds they shouldn't have. So they'll develop how that's going to work. They're also developing a program to allow withdrawal from a claim already filed of which review is not complete. They expect that to come out this fall. So if you have one, you've not yet been paid, even if you're under exam for that claim, the IRS is going to allow you to simply withdraw the claim. In essence, no harm, no foul, we're done. You can withdraw your claim. To withdraw the claim, you will not be exposed to penalties, right? You're not be exposed to penalties. You're not be exposed to any other compliance action. If you decide to go forward, then you could face some issues. So be aware of that, right? Uh, it taught, it reminds you that it's not, you know, you'll sometimes hear people say, well, there's, you know, you won't get if you don't ask. So there's no harm in going for it. Yes, there's harm. Uh, as, jo as Johnson found out, you know, there are penalties, right? There's interest, right? The penalties are 20% of whatever they got. Well, basically, you're talking about paying something that may be, you know, right in line with or more than the, you know, the mills the mills fee. That's going to be an additional one there. Remember, you're paying it back anyway, so you're going to pay back, going to get nothing, and then pay this, and then still hope you can try to get money back from the mill. There's a lot to go wrong, and we're talking about companies going out of business, you know, if this goes wrong on them. So that that's the type of risk you're taking. So be aware of your risks when we do that, right? Now, for those who have filed a claim, they actually then bullet point this for them and put it in these areas. They, they tell people right away, there is no way to speed those claims up. Don't call us. Don't call us and say, you know, can't you get my money quicker? It's like, no. And I think that's also kind of a warning statement, uh, you know, to the taxpayer advocate's office that, nope, you don't call us and want to speed one of these up because it's not going to happen. Right. We, we're not going to speed this up. We're intentionally doing this. In. We are going to have additional scrutiny. So expect there to be additional time to get your money. Expect that uh, you may very well be asked to provide more information, you know, and it'll be denied. We've had reports that, you know, they also go in and look for things like, did you amend the returns, you know, to reduce the wages? And if you haven't, we're disallowing it until you show us that you've reduced it, that you've done it. Right. And they also say, if you're not filed, carefully review the program guidelines with a trusted tax professional, not the promoter, and consider withdrawal if not justified. Do, if you are only asking the promoter, you are on warning now that if you only go there and it turns out you don't win, uh, expect to have the book thrown at you. 
because that wasn't reasonable reliance. Uh, what if you already received a refund but are concerned you don't qualify for it? Okay. They tell you to watch for the details of the settlement program. Now, unfortunately, what they don't say is we're going to kind of slow down audits, you know, and slow down exams and stuff, uh, waiting for the settlement program. Rather, you know, they're, they're saying, well, watch for it. It's going to be interesting to see what exactly the program will have in it. It definitely will allow you to avoid penalties and future compliance action. But what they don't say there, what I think you have to understand means is almost certainly true is you will almost certainly have to pay back the entire claim at refund and even you get keep part of it. And, um, you know, you're going to pay interest. Now, we might see some relief on paying back the entire amount. Uh, if, if you had an option for a business that had a promoter or contingency fee paid out, there was pressure in the Ways and Means hearings, or at least a discussion. I wouldn't say pressure, because certainly the, the chair of the subcommittee was very sensitive to the fact that, you know, we don't want to give people incentives to cheat. <laughs> it's kind of the concern. You know, what can we do, though, if these people have already paid a 25, let's say, they got a million-dollar ERC refund, but they paid 25% or $50,000 of that out to, you know, Mill A. And now Mill A is not answering their phone calls. And because, by the way, that, that also has happened in some early cases. Uh, there, there was a, you know, a, a, what ended up being a criminal case eventually that came down um, that you may have read about. I think we discussed briefly a while back. But that was one where, yeah, they, they just stopped answering the phone after the IRS. That, that was one that was doing ridiculous things like filing ERC claims for people that were self-employed. Uh, obviously, that doesn't work. Um, but, you know, but then, then even though they were told to have protection, this is totally justified, it all works. When suddenly, you know, the IRS came after and started going after the clients who went through that program. Well, it's not surprising the company basically, you know, collapsed. And that, that, that's kind of the big deal. So the question is, is there some way knowing that if I know that, you know, I'm, I'm calling now, you know, you know, ERC Mill, we're behind you for life, Company Inc. And I'm getting a disconnections notice and no e and emails bounce, right? The website's down and gone. And, you know, you can't find anybody who is associated with it. They all seem to have left the country. You know, at that point, I'm looking at a million, I've got a million dollars here that was paid to me. I now am getting very concerned that, especially since they're not answering the phone, that maybe I shouldn't have got the million dollars. Um, but the problem is $250,000, that million went to them. And if I got to pay back a million, um, I'm out of business. I might as well, the theory will be to most of them is I might as well just wait and see if the IRS shows up. So they're trying to figure out some way to bring those people in from the cold. And we'll just have to see if they come up with a method that might work in that case. An employer consider filing a claim, consult with a tax professional, not affiliated with a firm promoting or marketing ERC claims. Do not call the number on the TV commercial. That's basically what we're saying. Don't call them, don't go to the website. Talk to a tax professional who is not going to be charging you a percentage of the claim and ask them. That doesn't mean you might not use a competent ERC consultant to prepare the claim. You might not decide, all parties might, that the simplest thing to do would be to go ahead and, you know, just allow us, you know, just go ahead and let them do it and pay the fee. I, I don't think that makes sense, but 
it might, and that'd be fine. But make sure you talk with, and if you've used a longtime tax professional, make sure you talk with that. Now, that means for us as professionals, we need to be able to respond to that. If you, if you are one of those who says, I don't know anything about the program, I would suggest you learn. But if you don't think you have time or you know, you're not going to be able to learn it, figure out who knows about it in your area and has time, which is going to be the tough part. Uh, you know, and just basically, you know, refer people to them. So, you know, do a, do a look at them to see if they could qualify for it. As I said, a sad thing I've seen recently is I saw one the other day that was a report, purported report, from a mill that unfortunately just listed some government orders, didn't really tie them to the company in any good way. You know, it was like four pages. And the sad part was it was a company that I think probably... I mean, I don't know all their details, but I could very easily see them qualifying for certain quarters knowing what went on in Arizona. But they wouldn't have qualified for all of them. Of course, the, the mill is filing for all the quarters. Uh, and I know that what they have right there right now is in no way going to get them, you know, they have the whole thing disallowed if that's all they present to the IRS. So unfortunately, if this company gets examined, you know, you tell them, look, right now, you probably should consider having somebody redo the work. Um, it's going to cost you. You're probably going to have to send part of the money back. But at least you won't be at risk because if you send it back before they contact you, you won't get the penalties, right? We'll be able to make this work and you won't have to spend the, and you won't have the mess of going through an exam, which is very disruptive even with no changes. So yeah, that's what you should do. Uh, you should, with the tax pro, review, review the Q&A guide, talk with them about that. An advisor should, and but here's the catch. As an advisor, and I've heard this from a couple people now, say, wait, but I, I, I've got clients I just found, people that just came as clients. I reviewed what their prior accountant had done, and they ignored this entirely. These people qualify clearly. If they qualify, file the claim. I would tell you that you probably want to submit more of that claim you might have been wanting to do in the past because you need to make it clear to the IRS that your claim, you know, the old line from Star Wars, these are not the droids you're looking for. Well, you want the IRS to look at that and you do your Jedi magic and tell them that these are not the claims you're looking for, right? This is not the claim you're looking for, right? This isn't who we're looking for. You know, make sure they know that you're, you're not the iffy claim. Make sure that they have the data that they would otherwise ask for. It's just there, right? That'll get your claim through with the least hassle. But go ahead and file them because the statute is going to run April 15th to 24. You're going to lose the 2020 statute. You want to get those filed, right? The 20 and the 21s, assuming they qualify for both, get, get those things filed. But, you know, understand, explain it'll take time, but that does not mean don't file them, right? Just tell them, you know, go through those details because if you qualify, go do it. That said, I suspect that the vast majority of those that qualified have already filed. And unfortunately, what businesses have to understand at this point in time, the sympathy for you it's probably going to get way lower, you know, if you just file now, because the theory being, well, this was supposed to keep companies in business during the pandemic. And kind of not, we don't have any such restrictions anymore. It's kind of like things aren't happening anymore. It hasn't been happening for quite a while, right? We, we've definitely been out of almost all pandemic controls, you know, for almost all of 22 and certainly all of 23. Uh, I don't, if your, if your business right now is 
is in trouble and about to go under, I suspect it's really tough to say that COVID was your only problem or even that COVID has anything to do with it. I mean, you know, we can carry this on forever, but at some point you have to say the business is just bad. So that's why there'll be less sympathy for you. But go for it, right? That's it. But tell me, you're probably not going to get it very quickly. So don't go spend the money right away. You know, and don't be surprised if we do get at least some call from the service, you know, if they want to see something extra, and we'll just provide it if they do. You know, hopefully we've given them everything, so we're not going to do that, but we'll do what we have to. Right. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of September the 18th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society CPAs. You can send me email questions, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. If you have any questions quickly on this, fairly straightforward, simple ones. I also monitor questions, post on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, um, Illinois, Minnesota, somewhat Washington, and also the Idaho Discussion Board. I'll take a look in there from time to time as well. But otherwise, uh, congratulations. You made it past the uh, dates for filing the returns for your pass-through entities. Now we got two weeks from today, if you're listening to it on on basically on the 18th, two weeks from today is the due date for your trust returns. And then two weeks after that, you know, basically on the 15th of October, right? Or somewhere in there. I forget what our date is really this year. Uh, but anyway, you know, we got basically about two more weeks and after that to get the individuals and C-Corps done. So definitely in, in the final run for this past tax season. But uh, in any event, we'll see what we can talk about next week for developments. I are on current federal tax developments.